Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, August 1st episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since the end of 2018, we have featured over 120 poets from 13 countries on five continents. And we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us at poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate either via PayPal or your preferred credit cards. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Malik Amir Crumbler. Hi, Malik. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you for having me. Of course. Fun time. Good. I'm glad. You brought with you today your poem, The Rest is Now, Take 22. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Just on a brief scan, I'm a poet, rapper, writer, editor. I work for a couple journals in Paris, England, as well as one in New York. Mm. Uh, these ones being Paris Lit Up, The Opiate. Sometimes I work with Cold Lips um, mm-hmm. in terms of writing. And then I also write for Itchy Silk and a couple other journals out of uh, London. Uh, I do music as well. Oh, well, I also did PR for Death Press A and released a couple albums for Death Press A and worked with uh, a lot of artists at Death Press A based out of London, mm-hmm. um, and I produce music, I compose music, I've got some stuff coming out this year. Currently, I've, I've, been, I've got back to watching Star Trek religiously again, and that's because I ran out of YouTube documentaries to watch on the Cosmos, mm. <laughs> so now I'm back to watching Star Trek, and I guess some of that obsession with the Cosmos is constantly in my work, so I work between the external cosmos and the inner cosmos. Mm. I like to see how those two relate to one another. Are you talking about the original Star Trek series? Both the new one that just came out and the old one. I love the Twilight Zone too, so I'm always watching stuff from the 50s. I'm obsessed with uh, black and white and like that raggedy technicolor of the early 60s too. Mm. (laughs) And the way, and and you know, the analog sound and everything. (laughs) <laughs> the writing was just stronger back then. It was more unpredictable. And when they did use the cliche, it was funny. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like they were trying to pass cliches over for some right. like, universal writing like they do now in television. But back then, it was just, you know, and I love those old accents. Now, you know, I like feeling like I'm my grandmother and grandfather, too. You know what I mean? It's like way. It's treating uh, media as a, as a spaceship travel right you know what i mean within your mind right in right. a cosmos check out like if I'm, if I'm watching perry mason black and white version I'm, I'm suddenly with my grandfather if i'm watching some old game show in twilight zone i'm with my grandmother you, know what <laughs> I mean? you, you saturate yourself in the presence of that experience so that's why i'm constantly in the, that, that old stuff uh-huh. i don't know if that's what people would want to know about me like i don't, I don't know what people want to know about me you know, I, I feel like 
It's like when you meet anyone, you never know what you want to know about them until they tell you, and then you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to know about that. That's a great point. That's a great point. I, I mean, I, I, otherwise than that, I, I constantly go around looking for uh, poets to publish, and I host Paris Lit Up and the Opiate. I'm kind of like a person who helps people network when they get to Europe so they can do readings or music and stuff like that. Oh, that's very nice of you. Yes, this is important because I feel like it is such a large space. People don't realize until they get into the space how large it is, how crowded it is, and because it's so crowded. The poetry community. Yeah, like little. It's like if you go into like an old-fashioned marketplace, and it's just so crowded with little vendors, and you have no idea which one you should visit. So. It's exactly. good to have a guide. Yeah. yeah. It's almost as chaotic as the night sky with no clouds. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. It's all those planets and stars up there and then those random things that shoot across the sky. Mm. But where do you fit into it? So right. in my younger experience, I found it overwhelming and very frustrating. So mm-hmm. my experience as a not-so-young person is to prevent people from going through the types of frustrations and struggles I did gaining access into the international art community that I have access to. You know what I mean? Right. Speaking of that, you're originally from Oakland via New York and how or... I'm I'm originally from Oakland and then I ran away to New York. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, I, I just realized I said that in reverse... How in the world did you end up in Paris? Well, when I was in New York, I used to work at a bookstore Mm. on the 18th and 5th. And I met a lot of people in there. And at the time, my friends and I, who were suffering under the uh, industry of popular writing, had put together a a website for unpopular writers and writers (laughs) who weren't being taken serious by the industry in New York. Mm. Um, That website shows that this... Before it, it was Madman's Calling, and we were always trying to get this stuff together. And then some of my friends in uh, Brooklyn put together the opiate. Mm-hmm. So when I was at work, and we were putting together all of this, and I'd be meeting people at the bookstore and asking them, like, do you write poetry? Do you take photos? Do you write anything? So contribute to this. Mm-hmm. And my buddies in Brooklyn started putting together readings. So we were coming up with all that during that time. I met a Parisian art world person. Mm-hmm. And gave her my book because I have my little unpublished books, and then mm-hmm. she recommended me to a residency out here in Paris. And uh, yeah. so I did. I came out here. I went to BAM. That was why I was here. And then I had a feature at Spoken Word of Paris, and the community was just incredibly receptive. I never had a reception like that mm. where I met my wife the first night I was here at the reading. At, um, <laughs> word. It, it was just something else. So I wound up moving here, and the, the poetry community is dense the Anglophone community and the Francophone community. Mm. And, and there was no hegemonic order that oh. was making sure certain voices would not be heard. And that's what New York and the United States always felt like. Mm. You know? So mm. I was like, wow, I'm free. And then when we got linked up in uh, more committees through Poets Live and Berkeley Books. And all these wonderful outlets to read and open mics. At that time, it was 
about five open mics a night. Wow. I mean, five open mics a week. Okay. So every day you could go read and hang out with poets. You know what I mean? And then the weekends yeah. would be salons. People would be reading on the same. It was, how do you not stay in that environment if you can? Right, right. Yeah, that's... that's and not, not to knock New York. I, I was doing a lot of readings in New York, too. And the community in New York was incredibly supportive. LIU is godless. When I got to Paris, based on the history you grew up with, wanting to come to Paris, it was just, you could stay, you'd stay. Yeah. I don't know anybody who wouldn't stay if they could stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially if you're used to the architecture right around Chelsea area, it is very, it has the similar quality to, to Paris, yeah. the Beaux-Arts. Yeah. 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 Going back to your poetry, when did you start writing poetry too young so i don't remember when i started writing poetry i know i started writing raps when i was six because mm. i got a little book and i was like i'm gonna do this mm. i'm tired of losing freestyle competitions with my brother and cousin and i started recording mm. little kid albums but with poetry it was always there because my mother and grandmother used to read me these old books of poems mm -hmm. um go to sleep. Even before that, they were reading me all these poems. So I, it was kind of like a way of communicating. Mm. I didn't really know it was a big deal. So mm. when they were teaching me to write, and because of what we were reading in elementary school with the little, like, bad news bears, everything was in verse. When mm. you think about it, all those little kid reading books in verse. And I was trying to emulate those. Mm. I was bored, and it was fun to draw. And you know what I mean? So as soon as I learned how to write, and because... I was surrounded by older siblings who were way older than me. They were really intense about it. You don't even know how to write. Like, you need to learn how to write. So I learned how mm. to write very early. And I immediately started writing what I liked, which was poems. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really understand the difference. Mm -hmm. I think prose was just boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it started with poems. So that was the first way I started writing. And, and a lot of it, my uh, mom used to read these. Egyptian, ancient Egyptian books to me. So I used to write the little Egyptian mythology and draw the hieroglyphs. When I, was oh, wow. I think I, well, I know I was drawing hieroglyphs first and then I started figuring okay. out. Okay. You know? And then I got serious, like, oh, it's poetry when I was about eight. Because <laughs> that's when, that's, that's when you, you know, when you get those special teachers mm. and they finally just, like, help direct you. So I was pretty disobedient child <laughs> she noticed that through the rapping and through other stuff that I was into poetry so she would give me like <clears throat> little kid commissions write this as a poem write that as a poem mm. and didn't judge and mm. see that's the difference the thing that I feel hinders a lot of poets now is they're always not now poets in America particularly is they're writing to win competitions as mm. if you can't be a poet if you haven't won awards right, you know? right. I think that's awful it does feel that way. You're writing to be scored and judged. You're not writing. Like we were saying earlier, writing is a therapeutic tool, first and foremost, since the beginning of writing and storytelling. Mm. Right? Communication is a therapy because you want to say what's in you. Mm -hmm. so if you say what's in you and someone has the nerve to convince you that what you want to share is invalid or a low score, why would someone do that to anyone? Why would someone even want to do that other than to make money? You know, and I, that limits the poet badly. Mm. So luckily for me, I didn't grow up in that. 
And when the um, competitions arose, I didn't I don't play that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a fan of slamming. Uh, it's, it's like, it's, it's like what, if, what if someone came up and judged the way you hug a person? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You get a five. That hug wasn't all together. <laughs> and then you try that. What you going to do? Well, I wasn't in the mind space to deliver a good hug, but I'm going to go home. Well, what are the hugs that do work? And then you got to study all the hugs that get big points. And then you go home and practice hugging people this way you know what i'm saying just so you can get a little title a little, a little acronym next to you and a little well that's pathetic but i never you know what i mean i'm just not that person right right yeah yeah and I, I think now that you pick up like that is because i came from poetry as an act of love an act of investigating yourself and figuring out how to think and learn not a way to get likes and shares you know what i mean you know, mm. get a trophy yeah I, I think with that mindset, it definitely, Europe is definitely more conducive to that. Um, and and it's, it's, yeah, because I feel like a lot of in the U.S., the mindset in the U.S. is like, let's get, let's get to the top of, let's get to the cream of the crop kind of. Um, yeah, but, it's, a, it's a reward and an award-based culture. That's always the um, goal of everything. Get more, get this, get this award, get money you know it's capitalism not yeah. to knock it it's, it's, I haven't seen that work well <laughs> you think it, you know what I mean when you're walking around with the competitive notion that I have to be a poet who's better than another poet why would you want to be better than another poet mm-hmm. I, I you think, know what I mean isn't that a little interesting it, it is and I, I think one of the good things about competitiveness is that it you know, maybe challenges you to write in a different way and in a way that maybe you haven't thought Absolutely. of. And I think that's, to me, more a healthy, healthier version of competition. Yes. Competition and clarity is how I like to look at it. Like, I would never compare myself to another poet because poetry is so... It's like comparing tongues. Mm. You know what I mean? Who has the better tongue? Who has the better teeth? I'm not concerned with that. That's your tongue. I hope you use it well. I hope you taste you know, the clarity is the mission. Mm-hmm. And lack of clarity can be the mission too. But mm-hmm. am I a better poet, i.e. a better human being because I'm more clear than you? That's not, come on, that's like windows arguing with each other because one has a windshield wiper and the other doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think one of the things that, that you realize um, as you, you move through the world, especially seeing different cultures and whatnot, you realize different people will, and I don't mean different people as in like uh, Americans versus versus the French, but more like different segments right. of the population will respond to different writing in, uh-huh. in various ways. And so there's room right. enough for all of our forms of communication. Uh, it's more a matter of Absolutely. fit, yeah, than anything else. Uh, and, and in that same realm, not to dwell on this duar, but because I worked in a bookstore for 10 years, I got to see why the awards are necessary. Right? So I knock them personally, but I understand why they're there. Mm-hmm. In the bookstore when I worked there in the early 2000s, poetry didn't sell at all. Mm. Poetry only sold for university textbooks, and you're talking about poets that live, you know, pre-20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, when you talk to customers about them, they weren't into it. It was just homework-based. 
Right, um, right. And then for contemporary poets to sell, they needed an award. So that was the way to PR them via the award, thus spread the information that this poet's here. Right. You know, they amplified the voices. So yeah. I understand that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it seems like the therapeutic aspects of poetry where youngsters say, oh, I can't write poetry. Poetry's old and dead or, right. you know, such and such writes poetry. I can never be like them. It's like the essence of poetry is not to be like anybody. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it's not, that's not transmitted. That's a whole thing, you know? Yeah, I think sometimes we confuse one with the other, right? And the, the functionalities of awards, we forget that. We forget yes. the practical aspect of it. I would love to continue this conversation in this vein at the same time. <laughs> then we'll never get to talk about your poem. And I want to talk right. about your poem. So if you don't mind now reading your poem for us, then we can discuss it. Okay. The rest is now. Take 22. The current climate in inner city, inner mind is dangerously vague. Current population in inner city, inner mind is almost infinite. Typical inhabitants' ages vary from pre-birth to imagined ancientness. On your left, Lotus in those vast redwood mountains drizzled with fragrant maples, wet eucalyptus, and sappy ferns. We believe it's best that you look out for various Malik's pre-birth to around 22. Attention! If ever you happen to find a Malik over 22 mine years old, lurking suspiciously in those dense, drenched woods, weaving between the faint aroma of blackened mouths and beaties drifting from that smoky quartz cave densely packed with depressed teenagers, freestyling forest spells and smoking kryptonite, boomboxes blasting cubes endangered species on red wine and rewind looping. Those all too new to memorize parental advisory advised lyrics, but still cursing in unison inside that proud choir, cacophony of curses harmonizing until a sudden cassette change to mouths and gill or Duke and Ella or Mingus and Dolphy morphs young bloods into personifications of Mila Repa until Steppenwolf and Inkadu carefully creep past Anyambu, Doroing, inside that clear-eyed Cyclops holding its breath, listening close as thread to school for any detuned chakras resonating through all that thick black and mild air as Brother Lynch hung blast, walking to my funeral, then season up the sickness, then situation on dirty we interrupt this program to remind you if ever you happen to encounter a malik who's over 25 but under 77 mine years old immediately inform a teenage malik who can't help but appear threatening even if he accidentally grins at your gaze instinctively intimidating you please pay no mind to his various stereotypical cloaks of self-defense on second thought please for your own safety don't bother any of they're all suffering from severe institutionally programmed violent youth disorder. You know what I mean. Ever since all those fallout war on drug shelters collapsed from being too packed for too long with Malik and all his murdered friends, not a single murderer ever found, convicted, or specifically suspected. Careful around those Maliks under 27 years young, most of them gangbang and disability. They're still in denial about their dysfunctional paranoia of so-called blank America can man in uniforms and suits, desperately disappearing at the threat of the board, 
bounty hunters slinging stolen organs and branding slogans on every inch of their fragile turtle shell. As blank face new age mystics claim they've evolved beyond color. Current climate in inner city inner minds trembling as colorless forests remain just fine. As another inferno continues ash raining on sizzling redwoods, eucalyptus ignites, and burning maples bleed turquoise sap. Meanwhile, Elder Hermit Malik takes to the streets campaigning, seeking all those younger terrified Maliks to polish up their petrified pineal glands while carefully interrogating them about their rumored allegiances to recent violent inner revolutions that left thousands of Maliks martyred. Please, for your own safety, keep an attentive eye out for those maimed Malik sculptures in Martyr Square located at the corner of 33rd Street and Honest Obsidian Boulevard. Please offer your offerings at the street corner altars or take a sincere, silent moment to acknowledge their endless genocide. But whatever you do, under no circumstance, do not, I repeat, do not attempt to film, record, or photograph them. The last one who tried to was eaten alive by five viridian-eyed infants, ravenous appetites for surprise, racist flesh. Thank you. That's that one. Thank you. It uh, packs a lot. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, it's just that. It packs a lot. It's one of your longest pieces that you send me, but it's still, it just packs so much in it. It's, to me, very stream of consciousness and uh, improvisational, knowing as little about you as I do. <laughs> No, but that's, 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 I'm, I'm glad to hear that's what it is. Because, it, you know, it takes a long time to get that feeling on the page. Mm, mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, the, like the amount of motion, cutting, crafting, you know, the years it takes to get it to go like that. And then the years it takes to trust making a poem that goes like that. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because there's a lot of things in there that a younger me would not have allowed to go in. Mm. And it's a lot of rhythms in there that a younger me wouldn't have permitted either. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I know you play jazz, I mean, I find a similarity in what you talk about in terms of the undergirding the practice and the comfort with poetics to uh, improvise or come off as right. if you're improvising. And that is a similarity that I find between what you just read and jazz riffs. Yeah, exactly. Because what I'm attempting to do is create a particular melodic rhythm that we can return to and then branch off off of. So mm. you create like a seed, and then from that seed, you can extrapolate all types of information and include it. Mm -hmm. it, it basically was something... I figured out when I was um, taking a class with Sigrid Nunez back in grad school, mm. and she was going around the class just asking people, how can you write about anything? And mm. everyone had all these answers. And then she was like, great. But in reality, it's your tone. So mm. if you establish a tone, work a tone in, and you can throw anything in it. And for me, that reminded me of the way I cook. Mm. <laughs> I don't, I don't use recipes. I just sit there and I go, what do we have in the kitchen? 
<laughs> All right. What do I know how to do with those objects? Fine. And then, you know, you make one thing one way. You might get some onions going over here with a little bit of garlic mm. and some oil. And then over here, you might have some vegetables. And then, you know, after a while, you learn not to mix them all at once, but to cook this a certain way. And then that way you can get certain textures and tone. Mm -hmm. But also, the experience I have in my brain with myself is like a, it varies from like an old gallery to the woods to whatever. In these realms, I want to be able, I find myself in meditation locating on an image or a statement that becomes an image. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I try to load them up, images, almost in a form of collage, mm. brain collage, thought collage. Mm. I was wondering, when, when did you write this? I started writing that one four years ago. Oh, wow. So it was, uh, it started out a lot more aggressive. Mm and a lot more ranty than mm. four years ago. I got completely frustrated and fed up with my ability to rant. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, in America, the rant poem works if you're in a certain environment mm -hmm. and you worry about things working. Out here, people don't rant so much. <laughs> you know, in Europe and South America and Africa, people don't really rant so much. And it's not because that's a form that doesn't work. It's just, it doesn't, pop with the audience so with that particular piece over the four years i kept working it in the audience like you would do a piece of music or some food you keep trying out to get it to where you want it i'm not saying it good or bad i don't deal with that anymore but just to get it where you want it to where you get the tone and you get the um the imagery together the way you want it that's mm -hmm. all mm -mm. From four years ago, when you started, when did you finish this piece? Because it was published recently, so. Right. When I got this grant to go to D.C. with Jeffrey Big Homie Banks mm. and some other folks in D.C. to do this uh, tour. And they were going to come out here, but Corona messed that up. They were going to come out here and do a whole European tour. I was compiling work to read while I was doing all those readings out there. And I hadn't been back to the States in four years. Mm. So I wanted to be sharp, and I wanted to give them something that showed how I've been working in my mind. Mm. I'm really obsessed with um, conveying thought as it is. And when I was younger, I thought it was about conveying the way people talk and act. But no. So uh, through these years, and particularly with that poem, I was trying to get to the clarity mm -hmm. of what I want to say, what I want to show you. you know? mm. Like, I want to show you these kids in the hills. I want, I want to show you the, the transformations that take place not only in time and age and in action, but also in the way you think about what you're doing with your behavior. Mm. You know, and then somehow have it behave on the page in the same way as it was behaving as people. Mm. You know what I mean? So playing with a lot of that surrealism and um, glitch reality. It's, mm. it's very similar to the Botticelli image you have on your um, design. That's how I think of it. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it could have just been Aphrodite. That's Aphrodite, right? Yeah. Yeah, it could just be her. We didn't need all those other things in that image. But because those other things are in there, as a viewer, you can do some hermeneutics on the imagery. And the mm -hmm. imagery can lead you in the story. Like, who are those two people blowing smoke? Is that smoke or is that wind? Mm -hmm. Right? Who's the person draping them with the, what you call it? He's not, Botticelli's not going to tell you about that. Mm -hmm. But... And it being there, it tells you about that. You just go on your own journey. 
going back to those interactive books. Want to go here and turn the page, that cortisol type of stuff. So I like to do that without having to turn the page. So it's just jumping from image to image, thought to thought, which is the way I feel in my meditations. Mm. As those thoughts just come randomly. Some of them are awful, some of them aren't. Some of them are full of guilt, some of them are full of joy. You know what I mean? Mm -mm -mm. I, I feel like. Because I first encountered this poem when you sent me the visual, so I read it first, right? And right. then when you told me that you enjoy the humor in it, and for me, I, I went back to reading it, and I can hear the humor when you performed it for us. But when I was reading it, well, even when, when you're reading it too, I, I feel the underlying this... Yeah, horror. Yeah, and and bitterness, to be honest, yeah. that comes yeah. through. That it's almost like layers of you. One is trying to distract the other layer of yeah. from the bitterness and unhappiness that is an existence that all too often, especially in America, but elsewhere too, in Europe as well. And people always come back to remind you that you are a black man in America, or you are a black man from America. And that comes right. with certain dangers. And and yeah. even though you're trying to distract yourself from it, you're trying to be the self that you want to be, which is, you know, this exactly. uh, somebody who is into sci-fi and, and all these, you know, larger cosmic thoughts, you're still brought back to this. Was that done on purpose, or is it something that came out in the first draft and you decided to keep that? Well, the, the first draft, of course, was furious. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's back to what we were saying before we got the phone. Like, mm. It'll come out of frustration. It, it, it comes out of sitting around, you know, if, if you have any sort of trauma or PTSD, mm. it gets annoying after a couple of decades that you're still dealing with thoughts and they yeah. get triggered by anything mm -hmm. right and that's what i alluded to by starting in the forest and all the allegories that start in the forest from dante making the left turn to the forest and going down the path something happens when you let yourself be naturally honest right so another thing i was dealing with in that piece was i'm going to write about everything i censor out of all my other writing mm. right so i went through a period where it was like because I'm obsessed with thought, right? And especially conveying thought from the people who you don't get to see thinking that often, mm -hmm. which is not just stereotypical images that prevail in the world of black American men, but of people in general, and especially toxic men, mm. right? Because we're in the age of confronting the toxic within our genetics and everything. And so mm. I keep seeing toxic men hide or try to defend themselves. And it's like, nah, just put it out there. A lot of stuff was toxic because that was the environment we were in. Toxicity was celebrated back then. Mm. So when you're a kid and you're hanging out with other kids and you know something is about to go down in the 20th century, to stay there was to be manly, right? Mm. To confront the dragon. Mm. So a lot of the rest is now is about dealing with internal PTSD and toxicity, mm. right? What do you do with your toxicity? You can't apologize enough. Some people don't care. Mm. And I'm not talking about my personal self. I'm talking about everybody who has ever had a toxicity. 
situation. So how do you process that in your mind? Well, through the meditation and psychology I've been studying, you just have to let it out mm. in your mind first and assess it as just objects that you don't understand on the table. Mm-hmm. Then start picking out what that thing is. Through that, learn a way to not only investigate the wound, but also figure out how to heal the wound. So you start testing stuff out in the forest. Know, this might work, you know, on some old Celtic grandma stuff like use this mulberry or you know what I mean? <laughs> Put some honey on it, all that type of stuff. But it's it's really about being honest, you know, because that was the problem with America prior to the past couple of years for me was always that America was so in denial about the trauma it had caused its own citizens that they just kept relying on the dream. Don't worry about all that trauma you went through. Don't worry about your traumatic history. Think about now and the next move. And look, you could get an award if you just keep it moving. It's like, nah, you have to deal with what happened in the house before you clean the house. Right, right, yeah. Otherwise, you're not gonna know what you're cleaning. Like, don't go get toilet paper to clean up an oil spill. (laughs) You know, but. Unless you assess that that's oil that was spilled, you won't be able. You know what I mean? You come in there like, oh, that's just water. No, it ain't. That's some dark water. No, it ain't. That's oil, my friend. Mm-hmm. Then not be having no matches. Come around that, and if you think it's uh, grapefruit juice on the floor, you come over there with some matches. You don't blew the whole house up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, People are always wondering. It's like, why aren't you climbing up the stairs? Why do you keep slipping on that? Why do you keep slipping on that? <laughs> thank you. Thank you, because it's also the, the, the scientific approach appears not to be natural, but in reality, you see from raising children, the scientific pro- approach is natural. It's just that when one is severely distracted, then you can't concentrate on the scientific approach, even if you think you're doing the scientific approach or not, because you're too distracted by all the little goodies. Yeah, and I think, you know, for different populations with varying exposure to the horrors of American history is that some have never known it because of just the fact that we are born into ignorance just as a species. We don't have transgenerational memory and we have limited capacity to pay attention. And some, even if they are interested even if they investigate, even if they take the time, the fact is they don't have the visceral experience. And I recently realized until you have the visceral experience, there is a part of you that's shielded from it. You can say, okay, you know what? I can't deal with this right now. I'm going to put it away because you are not forced to confront with it. Whereas the people who are forced to confront with it, they don't have the possibility of saying, well, today I'm not going to deal with it. Yeah, see, that's that's the other thing that I'm getting at in there. Because now that I live out here, I don't experience the environment that used to frustrate me so much to write in the way that I did. Now, I'm constantly annoyed by the amount of the frustrations I had when I was in that environment, mm-hmm. how they interrupt. And that's why I use interruptions a lot and um, the rest is now. Because the thoughts or the trauma from the states interrupts your joy in the now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, the first thing that changes when you move to Paris after experiencing the trauma in the states is you begin, your body language changes because you don't have to walk around because violence is so... It, it's not even comparable to the states. So the energy isn't 
five in there. You know, when you travel, you get out of the States, and you're like, if you go to some places, there's not that culture of violence going on in the atmosphere and the environment in the streets. You don't see people looking like they might do something. So your shoulders relax. And the moment that your shoulders relax, you start to realize just how much trauma you have stored just in your shoulders. experiences as well just going living in another country living in a different culture from what you're used to growing up that it's not like the racism doesn't exist but it exists in a different form and so you deal with it in a exactly. different way and exactly and you have to adjust to it like swimming in different waters yeah yeah and also i don't know if you felt this way I don't feel it in the poem itself, but I wonder as an expat being able to get away from this constant fear, constantly having to put up your guard, never knowing when it might be you. Do you feel a sense of survivor's guilt or have you felt that? I, okay, so survivor's guilt, which is all through that poem too, mm. but I, I, I edited it out blatant stuff except for the part about my friends being murdered and the murderers never found. Mm. I had already a 
achieve survivor's guilt by the time I was 14. Because I grew up in Oakland mm-hmm. and was in public schools. And, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I had access to that wonderfully vibrant period of Oakland, but also insanely violent period of Oakland. So a lot of my friends got murdered when I was before I was 14 and continued to get murdered. Wow. Not only by police, but by gangs and stuff like that. Wow. So the thing about America to me is I never... I would write about it in my raps, but I wouldn't write about it in poetry because I didn't want to be like the slam poets mm. <laughs> who, who just rant you to death about who got murdered and how awful racism is. So I was always trying to navigate a way where I would speak in code about that by using the mythological ancient gods. Also in the States, I could never admit that I was afraid of anything. Mm. See what I'm saying? Because fearlessness is your survival fight, basically. Because if you walk around afraid all day, you can't do anything. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's a matter of avoiding physical contact and avoiding the psychological contact because it'll drive you crazy. Mm. What? And for what reason would a person who feels haunted or haunted and hunted go out to the hunting grounds every day just, just to see just if that old deer can see if they're going to make it through the woods, even though they hear the environment in the woods creaking and cracking in the leaves and everything, and the birds get quiet. Mm-hmm. So you know a hunter's there. You know you might get stalked. If you walk around like that, you'll be like a deer. You, be, you just see black men just walking down the street running all of a sudden like deers in the woods. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So you have to create a thick shield wherein you don't let any of that get to you. Mm-hmm. So once you get out of that phase... You can finally, you're in a safe psychological environment and a physical environment. So now you can think about it like any war vet would. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And um, that's what it did. And a lot of that was inspired by the writings of uh, Cole Goodwin and Matt Jones. Basically, my community out here, everyone's very interested in getting very honest about their trauma Mm. and figuring out a way to laugh with it. Because if you can't laugh about it, what you going to do? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Oof. Yeah, it, there's so much, as I said, in this poem. And I feel you must have exercised a lot of self-control to keep it the length it is. Because, you know, you could have just gone on. It could have been an just epic poem. Oh, that, well, that's why it's called Takes. So, bringing it back to the recording process, Mm -hmm. I wish there was some way for poets to make clear that, because when I was young, I thought that you just sit down and write a Mm -hmm. poem that works. I didn't really understand revisionism. It took about 15 years to really understand the necessity of revision, but then it took about five more years to understand the gift of revision. Because there was a period where I was writing revision 212 or whatever. But now I just like to play with it like a recording. So that's take 22. So you know that there were several other takes before that one <laughs> that didn't work. And this is as good as it can get for now. But just like Walt Whitman and, you know, HD and Hildegard Barbini kept editing their work their whole life, that's something that I want to activate too. So in 20 years, that poem will probably be three lines. <laughs> <laughs> or like, say, with yours. So when we get to your poem, I'll bring it up. But 
there's a way to achieve the same density impact mm. with less words. And that was something that that poem, which used to be a lot longer, mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was so boring. You know, when you're reading your own work and you get bored and then you're sitting there like, why don't I just get rid of this? And then something in you loves your darling. It's like, no, you can't. We've been working on it for years. <laughs> Luckily for me, like five years ago, I guess it was the, the result of studying with Jessica Hagedorn and Louis Borsch and John High and Louis Perez-Vidola. They were like, you're never going to survive your own writing unless mm-hmm. you figure out how to destroy your writing. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. That particular... I've chiseled for four years, which is obvious in your piece too. Most of this writing stuff is chiseling. Yeah, yeah. I I think, you know, similar to you, when I began, I just wrote and be like, I'm done. That's it. I'm never going to look at it again. And in a sense, as a. As a therapeutic process, it is like that, right? Because you kind of throw up what you don't want to keep inside, and then you never want to see it again because you've exercised it from your soul. At the same time, when you are doing craft, when you realize you want to call yourself a poet, then you're like, well, then I'm going to have to go back and look at my writing as pieces of creation rather than just something I want to throw away. So Well, that's, that's the thing. Louis Wars was obsessed with when mm-hmm. I was studying with him. You know, I'd be like, "Great, you vomited. Now, why do I want to investigate your vomit?" <laughs> because vomit is modern you know art. I mean? <laughs> right, right. It's it's so modern, but at the same time, he's just just do that. He'd always be like, "You know, I don't I don't care what you ate for breakfast. I, you know, I don't want to see it in vomit. Like, you can tell me about this in a different way than vomit. <laughs> Try it at least." You know, it needs to be like, just at least try it. If you don't like doing it, that's one thing. But at least try it just to see maybe you will like it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it goes back to the different audience and different strokes for different folks kind of thing. Because some people really like the Absolutely. just the immediate effect of hearing your emotional vomit. Right. And some people right. don't. Well, it's like cats, right? <laughs> you, 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 you get that, that first draft is usually your hairball. <laughs> <laughs> the really, really, the first 20 drafts are your hairball, <laughs> if you're honest with yourself. Because you know? even before you get it on the page, you've been working with it in your mind. Like, even when you're writing from a place of frustration or whatever, you've been frustrated for a minute. It's not right when the frustration is. Mm-hmm. When that frustration boils over and it can't stand your mind, that boils over onto the page. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the blob because I was thinking about talking about the blob in relations to our poem. Well, also in relations to the progression of societal ethics. You know, it's very blobby. So I'm really happy that you brought up revision and my poem, which did have a lot of revision to it, is called What If We Had. And so I'm going to read that and then we can continue to have this conversation about it. What if we had a limitless treasure trove of resources, a fantastical trunk full of practical tools to cultivate an architecture for sprouting appreciation beyond the mind's trimmed hedges, 
What if the experience of cruelty didn't push nature to decimate for want of self-preservation? What if we borrow kinship sapling to bud a flourishing ecology with the rest of the world? Can we then nourish the comfort of our safe space to branch out toward the far end of the universe? Would our fears give way to the seedling burgeoning from endearment's velvet moss? Would its ivy vines wind around those old frames to thrive in a new landscape? Yes, it would. <laughs> <laughs> There's several elements that I really appreciate and inspire me on here. One, I really always enjoy when a form is kept, right? So even even on the just the immediate vision, mm-hmm. the encounter with the beast. Two, 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 two lines, two lines, two lines, two lines. To be able to achieve something, uh, and by something I mean an image and a story and a thought. So each one of those two lines can operate as pure thought exercise, mm-hmm. right? And the, the thought exercise for me begins just with the title and the fact that there's no question mark. Mm. You know what I mean? The fact that it says, what if we had, and then it has a footnote. Mm. Right? What if we had one? So there's several levels operating here for me as mm. a reader. is why I enjoy it. Just by the title. <laughs> what if we had one? What's the one? Is that a... Is that a typo? Is that then you scroll down to the end and you're like, it's a footnote. It's a footnote to what? You know? Mm-hmm. And this was something that I remember. Um, there was a period where in New York, everyone got obsessed with doing footnotes because of David Foster Wallace. Or at least in my little community of obscure writers, everyone was like, footnotes, footnotes. <laughs> but people were just doing them and doing them. And it didn't have a surprise nature to it. So when I saw title and I saw that one one is what if we had to the first power hmm. just back to the hermeneutical things that I love to do and I love I love it when someone does it um, so what if we had to the first power what if we had footnotes scroll down in the footnote and then the link is to an article about the killing of Rodney Applewhite hmm. so at that moment so for, for me personally, I had read it without reading the footnote first. Mm-hmm. So I read it, then I read it five more times, let it really sink in, let the music of it come out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed where the lead letter was capitalized, where it wasn't. All this, you know what I mean? All this wonderful uh, craft element going on. The fact that there's no punctuation in terms of commas or periods or dashes or slashes. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the bottom and you go even deeper. I'm not even dealing with the content because the content is all over there. I'll get to that later. But by the time I finally read that, I was like, oh, now I have another lens to read this poem with. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the poem, the poem is constantly morphing. The, con- the, the poem is growing as you encounter it. And that's what's exciting to me about um, contemporary poetry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? When someone really uses the tools of footnotes and internet, everything we have at our disposal now to really take you on a journey. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. Thank you so much. But that that, that goes back to that one line, appreciation beyond the mind's trim pedants. Mm -hmm. Uh, And 
And first of all, another thing I really appreciate about um, certain contemporary poetry is when I, when everything is unpredictable. So, you know, after decades of reading poems, you get pretty used to what people think makes a poem. <laughs> and it's usually that big reliance on similes. Mm. I've been in it too long. I used to love similes. I can't stand them now. <laughs> so the fact that this poem doesn't deal with similes opens it up. Because similes, similes for me are too limiting. limiting mm. And they force the uh, comprehension of the reader. Mm. No, I don't want you to tell me what it's like. I want to figure that out on my own. Mm. I can't. I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, respect my imagination to be able to figure out your images. So... When you use words like limitless treasure trove of resources, we're in, like, which limited treasure trove? Great. Mm-hmm. I have questions. Questions make me want to keep reading. A fantastical trunk full of practical tools. Like, oh, it's over. You know what I mean? Like, we could go anywhere from there. Anyway, I don't want to just keep hiding on it, but every part of that. Um, well, basically, each two lines operate as a particular planet. Since you have one, two, Four, five, six, seven. You're basically dealing with the old solar system, seven planets, right? Yeah, the classical. Yeah. And then each planet has its frequencies. There's two sides to the planet. One side is always lit. One side's not lit. And then that's kind of the balance that's going on here too. When you think about the imagery and the musicality of the top line and the bottom line. Mm. You know, You're hired, by the way. Stuff. You're hired for my hype huh? team. You're completely hired for my hype team. Thank you. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we should do it. And, and that's something that I appreciate when poets get to poets is we get to really go in on craft. Because I think a lot of the stereotypes on poets that we just hang out and every now and then we get lucky and have a good poem. <laughs> like there's, like, there's luck in poetry. There's no luck in poetry. No. And that's, that's the, the element when we're younger. You think, oh, I... I'm inspired. I have the muse with me. I've got the Duende. You have to revise that Duende. You know? And that's what I find young uh, poets that I hang out with. When I hang out with these. Some of them aren't there yet. They don't know how much work goes into just getting the right word. And most of our time is focused on that. Like limitless on top of fantastical. It probably took some time to figure that out, right? I feel like that's pretty... Just that architecture. Just that poetic architecture. You yeah. know what I mean? Just to line it up like that. A limitless And then right below it is A fantastic. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, ah, the architecture. Ah, thank you. Thank you. I think the first two lines is... Hmm, uh, I don't remember reviving it too much. Some um, I did revive this poem a lot. Partly because I wrote this in a workshop. Uh, a day after I found out oh, about okay. the Rodney Applewhite killing. And it was a generative workshop, and I, w- I forget what the theme was. I, I think it's like if you have whatever you want. I, I, I don't remember, but, you know, it was, it was one of those more aspirational themes. And so, like, some of the elements came out, but I realized that with some tinkering, it could become more ecological in the in yes i was just about to ask about that too yeah well and, and this is another thing that i appreciate when there becomes a a, a tone a visual tone 
these N words such as sprouting, trim hedges, preservation, sapling. You know what I mean? And then it, you, you think you're just in the forest or the garden. And then you lift us once you reach the comfort of a safe space. You literally let us know, like you broadcast, I'm about to branch out to the bar in the universe. You know, and now we're gone with you. And then the fears get away. So it's it's not only it's a traveling poem in that you travel within yourself and you seek not only a destination, which most poems do, but mm-hmm. you also have an environment to walk around in before you live. Mm-hmm. And what I find in poems that I enjoy the most is when you start somewhere, you take me on a journey, right? I'm an old Homer head. I'm an old <laughs> Sappho head. I need to go on a journey. I'm bored. I didn't come to your poem to be bored. I came to your poem to go somewhere to experience something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, like, it's, it's that type of thing. Like, what does what does one expect from the poem? And then does the poem live up to our expectations? Mm-hmm. You know? And that's what I consider the misstatement of people saying whether it's a good poem. And I don't believe in that. I believe in certain takes, like you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And when the taste is satisfied, then you have a pleasurable meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think... The revision process is, I just wrote it during the workshop, then I revised it on my own, and then I brought it to another workshop to revise it because I felt like some of the language seemed stilted, and I wanted to be less so, and I wanted to be more natural as the imagery is more natural sounding. So, um, right, literally and metaphorically, which you did. You got it. Thank you. Because it's, it's, it, it flows naturally, and... Because you put that restraint on it in the two lines, two. I went to a lecture once and Idra Novi kept talking about how she was fixating on restraint. Restraint, restraint is like 2016, right? Mm. And I had a real problem with that word because in my own work, I was fixated on not restraint. And um, I was I was working with uh, John High and Lewis Walsh at the time. And they kept being like, the restraint, you're dealing with the word as it applies to you, we're talking about form. And I was like, yeah, but it's one of the same. And he was like, no, it's not. <laughs> Especially Lewis, you know. And so I think when we go back to workshops, because I also want to ask you how often you rely on workshops. When we go back to workshops, it helps us figure out how much restraint we want, like what value do we want this at. What do, you, do, you, do you feel like that too? Or? Well, I don't know of too many workshop where is this editing? Um, Paris lit up being one, but it's only once a month. Um, at the same time, I don't always have a poem that I want to. Sorry? Have you been going to the Paris lit up workshop? Yeah, yeah, I've been trying to. I had to skip the last yes. one because <laughs> I had to skip the last one because I was too busy. I, I do look for them. I look for both generative as well as editing workshops. And there are some pieces where I write them and, and I'm like, there's something wrong with it and I don't know what the heck it is. And, and then, <laughs> yes. That, that's when I bring them to a workshop. Most of my poems, I'm like, wrote it, uh, done, and sometimes I go back to it and I, I do my own edits and I'm okay with the edits I did. And I'm like, this is what I want. There are some pieces where like, I don't want somebody else's opinion on it. I want it exactly as right. it is. Right. So 
it just really depends on the piece. So it's not that often that I rely on editing workshops. I think I'd rely more on generative workshops, especially if、um, you know I'm in a calmer state of mind and I I just want to looking for different prompts to write to and also to expand sort of my horizons in terms of what I write about. Although、yeah. this is this particular poem is not something the topic and the subject focus is not something that's a stranger to me. I've written about police brutality and extrajudicial killing of African Americans before, but I don't often write in the more like. Is this is this not about what is it you know like where right, is right, right. more often than not the other pieces are more、um, less subtle and this is more subtle and I, I think it、yeah. also this piece also speaks to the case as well, which is to me it, it is painful not only because of the intersectionality of. Racism and also the historical context in which this happened—that if it wasn't for the historical context and so many different contexts, that Rodney Applewhite would still be alive. And、um, it is not one of those clean-cut cases in any kind of form, where because, as you saw in the video. Uh, which is in the article.、Um, the officer was also distraught、uh, after shooting Rodney Applewhite, and Rodney had was trying to take another his colleague's gun. And I felt like in this particular case, Rodney, being a veteran, that knowing how terrible our we treat our veterans,、mm-hmm. that. Likely, he was might have suffered from some kind of psychological needs that were not being met, and from what he said afterwards, when after he was shot, when he said, "Oh, I, I thought we were supposed to do that." And I think for people who are ignoring, as you know, you go back to this oil spill in the house image, who are ignoring that oil spill in the house. To just say, well, then why, why did he take his gun? Then of course he's going to get shot. You know, you, you can have that mindset if you do not understand the history, if you ignore deliberately ignore the history because the his this history as it's played out just within the last year, it is so in your face that I don't know how anyone can、mm-hmm. ignore that. And so, well, so when you when you come from a Generative place of, of emotion, right? So, for me, it seems like with this poem, very emotional. All of that, but because you turned the volume down, like mixing music or、uh, seasonings and food, you, you you keep the emotion in there. You turn it down like a roux instead of being the main taste, and then you like. How is the decision process to make it lift from an emotional poem that could have been a rant, that could have been a da 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 da? Decided to decorate it with this almost romanticism imagery, and by romanticism I mean literally the romantics who talked about the forest, the nature poets. You're you're evoking Emerson and you're evoking some of that 
old time Celtic or anybody who's ever been in the woods imagery to talk about something so unnatural as police murders. Police murdering non-police. I don't know that it's unnatural. That's the thing. That that's the scary thing is that if we look at nature, right. we see how it right. sort of dominates different species. Dominate there is. I mean, it's a full web. We recognize that it's a full web now. But you know, humans is at the top of this almost a pyramidal structure of how destructive we are as a species of both ourselves right. and other species. Right. But we see that force in other species interactions as well so i think it is and in the the cosmos yeah yeah and i think it is a natural in terms of non-manipulated process and the fact is us being humans we have certain choices as a species to use tools that we have with our mind with our hands with whatever at our disposal to make the world a better place. So I'm also using this sort of the cultivation aspect, the uh, how do we cultivate so that it's not just wild, it's not just survival of the fittest, uh, you know, so that we're not living in this sort of root uh, lifestyle where we're always caught up in this toxic dynamic. How do we get out of that mindset? Right. And how do we be more nuanced in the way that we think about it? Because I, I think, at least in America, we are still talking about racism in a very rudimentary way, in a very black and white, both literal and figurative way. Whereas, yeah, it's like it's the 18th century. It's, yeah, it's, it's like... It's still talked about within the slave language of slavery. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Instead of this tapestry of colors that do not necessarily mix well and ethnicities and how do we as a country that's made for the most part of immigrants and also you know we are a nation that encompasses many other nations when you're talking about the indigenous nations how do we learn to live together because it was an aspirational theme and I thought about even as I heard the news of Rodney Applewhite the day before I wrote this poem I was like I think I want to write a poem about that but I'm not sure because the previous I think it was the previous day I didn't yet know the details of what happened it's ironic because I wrote the first draft of this poem still not knowing what the details were, and then I searched for it again, and I found the details from this so, local news source. So, so, so the first half of the poem is before the details. No, the and the, the f- second half is with the details. No, the first draft, the entire thing, the first draft. Oh, first draft. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I wrote the first draft um, after hearing BLM uh, Phoenix's uh, talk about Ronnie Applewhite. I think I think the sequence was that, and then I looked at the details again because I I wanted to, like I said previous to us starting to record, I always want to be as factual as possible, even if I'm not incorporating facts right. in my poem. I still don't want to mislead people, 
and I wanted to find out more about it. And just reading, not not just reading, but watching the clip, is just it breaks your heart. I'll tell you something. For me, I stopped watching video after Rodney King. Mm. So when it comes to all of this, that's just me. I also don't watch gangster movies. Like mm. I've never seen The Wire and never will. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like I cannot, for my own mental health, I can't watch these things. So I don't. I totally understand why everyone else does. For me, the way I look at it is the same way the lynching postcards were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I access this, and this is also what I appreciate about your poem, you talk about it in what happens mentally and above dealing with the cruel nature of the imagery of that thing. So by going into that awful cruelty, toxic reality, bring out what's underneath it and what can grow from it. And that's a matter of prevention. Because what I've always noticed about any violent country or violent person or violent anything is that the reason it continues is because prevention is never dealt with. Right. And in any form of activity, prevention needs to take place. America's never been a prevention-focused society. The only thing American focuses on with prevention is going broke. Like, whether it's the budget for the government, they never go broke. They will be in debt, but they will not go broke. (laughs) The whole essence of America is don't go broke. You can be broken while not going broke. You can break people, but you better not go broke. So that's the only thing that's preventive. And we're not only seeing it from the virus of racism and murder and violence on women and violence on children. We're also seeing it now, the metaphor, the simile would be the virus that's actually hitting the world because the whole world never dealt with figuring out a way to prevent these horrible cruel toxic realities from reoccurring not just from black men getting murdered or black women getting murdered or mexicans being murdered whatever color you can put down there to get murdered we still we're talking about all that and like in europe the big crisis is abuse of women mm-hmm. because the coronavirus created a situation where women are stuck at home with these toxic, abusive men, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're so unable to deal with violence, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and the reason we can't deal with violence is because we haven't prevented cruelty. We haven't prevented any of that stuff that leads to violent action. And that's what I appreciate in the poem when you go to, first of all, what if, because that's a road to prevention. But what if we borrow kinship sapling to bud, a flourishing ecology with the rest of the world, right? Mm. Did you unpack those two lines and how they relate to the concept of prevention and growth and healing? And or maybe they don't. Just I just wanted I was I was really caught by that line, those two that uh, combination. Yeah. Since the Corona shutdown has taken place, I've gone to many different open mics. In many different communities. Online? Yeah. Okay. And I've also been kicked out of communities because for one reason or another, they feel like I do not belong. Um, And That's what I was talking about in the beginning with the award reality. Like, how could you tell a poet a poet can't belong? (laughs) The essence of a poet is that we don't belong. (laughs) 
country comes from, the branch, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I've had a lot of experience of intercommunal racism, and it is painful no matter what. And there's an extra layer of painfulness because there's a false expectation that somehow we will be more understanding toward one another, whereas really that is just a false expectation, and we should stop having that. And the reason we have that is because our conversation about racism and prejudice is so rudimentary. Um, Yes. So when I talk about kinship, it's rooted in that experience. And it's also rooted in our inability as a species, as a living being, maybe, to, we don't have the mental capacity to process everything. So we need to departmentalize. So it's, it's a logical practical tool that we use but at the same time if we are not aware of the fact that this is a practical tool that we as a species use we don't realize how limiting that compartmentalization is and so we never consciously fight against that when it comes to inclusivity you know welcoming people who may not look like us who may not have the same uh, or similar cultural practices as us and realize that maybe you find somebody who's a kindred, even if they're not a kin. Yes. Yes. See, but that, that's what I was feeling from it. And also what it activated in me, too, was the garden of the mind mm-hmm. and how kinship, like going to the workshops that you were talking about, as soon as you meet a kindred, all Octavia Butler implied, Mm-hmm. The sapling, the camaraderie that you have with that kinfolk that you didn't even know existed until you went to that workshop or you went to that reading, it buds something, right? Yeah, yeah. And if, if nothing else, it buds the isolation concept that for some people lead to certain toxic stuff that creates a violent action eventually. So knowing that you can't hurt this person, you wouldn't want to unless you like hurt your brothers and sisters which is a whole other concept we need to talk about, prevention in the family. Right, <laughs> right. We're fighting and all that. But right. And that's what... that flourishing ecology. Yeah, and that's what led to the following couplet, because I don't come from the most, <laughs> the healthiest family, so I understand this. Um, <laughs> None of us do. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want to just couch it in one particular way of looking at it at kinship because a lot of people right. come from very unhealthy domestic situations and so i wanted right, to yeah so i wanted to say the comfort of our safe space because then that's yeah. something you make rather Clarified. than yeah so, it's the thing you make and, and that's that's the, the whole thing about this it's about a, a planting tending to your garden mm-hmm. uh, internally psychologically spiritually and then in the hopes that it will thrive in a new landscape for the rest of the world. That all that, you know what I mean? That that cathartic element. Like there's so much cathartic themes going through here. And I guess it's because you couched it in the garden. Gardens are tactile catharsisism happening in your face. And if you could just link your mind to it like the ancients did, you could have a lot of fun with your brain. <laughs> Thank you. With yeah. The and- flourishing ecology within your mind. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Thank you. And I think, you know, a lot a lot of people who might avoid talks about 
you know, identities and identity politics, they would be comfortable talking about ecology. They are comfortable yeah, talking about yeah, environmental protection. So it is, again, just trying to speak in a way to maybe resonate with a new audience or with a different audience or in a different way with people. Because as I said, I have written these poems in much more a confrontational tone and a much more just like, I am so freaking angry kind of thing. Right, but this, but this this one doesn't feel like that. The, the one we published at the Opiate has all that tone, and, yeah. and we appreciate that tone on that topic. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because um, sometimes but that, but, the first step to take is to shout out that there is something wrong. And and yes, that particularly... Sound alarm. Yeah, that particular tone is needed as well, especially when there are so many yeah. people who, again... They don't need to have this experience. They don't. They are not confronted, forced to have this experience, so they can avoid it, or they just don't know about it, and they need yeah. to hear it. And don't care. Yeah, and so they they, they don't. Yeah, they don't. Oh, I, that brings it back to what is the function of the poet, right? Mm. Because at, a, at when you were talking about compartmentalization, a lot of forms of entertainment, whether one believes poetry is entertainment or not, that's a whole other conversation. Mm. But when the people are in the audience or the, the audience comes to your page, what do you want them to gain from your work? Mm. You know, and it seems like to me that piece that's in the, uh, <laughs> the opiate, which everybody should check out, um, <laughs> that's the alarm. And then that's like if you ran up to the ambulance was like, what's going on? And the, and the ambulance driver leaned out the window, being you, and was like, this. And then the traffic clears up and the ambulance drives on to the destination. Right, Whereas right. this one is after you take a break from the hospital and go outside, if you smoke, you have a smoke. If you don't, you walk around in the garden and the gardens speak to you or the cigarette speaks to you. There's a limitless treasure trove of resources. Well, you know what I mean? Like, you know when your brain kicks in and you get the, that juicy thought. What? <laughs> a limited what? I'm just out here trying to take a break. A fantastical <laughs> trunk full of practical tools. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, it gives you something to do with your brain. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's something that I think when you're distracted, you can't... I think one job of poet and poem is to focus the reader, the audience, on a specific thought experiment. I don't trust that all the way yet, but I'm kind of thinking like that about it. What do you think? I think it very much depends on my my own mood as well, the poet's mood, right. any poet's mood, because sometimes right. you do need to vent, and if it comes out in a poetic yeah. form, even if it's kind of in-your-face poetic form, Again, some audience will vibe with that, and that's fine. I, yeah. I think as writers, we don't necessarily think of the audience. We're not as deliberate as that. Here's my question on that. About the audience, because as Matt Jones says in post uh, POU, mm-hmm. revision is wrestling with the sun. Mm. Right? This thing you're going off about. And it seems to me, and I don't know if it's because I've been reading in front of people for some time 
But even when I took eight years off of performing, I was still writing to the attention of my internal audience. Mm-hmm. And I think the internal audience is what we sit with a lot. So yeah. in my mind, my internal audience changes. So sometimes I write a poem for my grandmother. Like mm. the rest is now was not written for my grandmother. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The rest is now was mid- written for my dead friends, dead homies. As we used to call. Mm. The rest is now was written for people who love Twilight Zone and like to go into the mind, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And it was written to show what who my internal audience is. Mm. You know, like when I think about work, I often say, well, what would the seven-year-old me think of that? Mm. You know, would, would that cat be entertained? Would, would my homegirl from junior high school embrace that? Would my great aunt read that? So a lot of my, and I'm, I'm saying all this to ask you if you do the same mm. with that internal audience. Do you have a fixed audience for certain tones and certain forms and certain topics in your work? I think it depends on how a poet uh, or any writer prioritizes. Right. For me, uh, nice. poetry is therapeutic first and foremost. And I think for other people, their first and foremost is more to publish or something else. You know, it depends on who the person is. And to get an award. To yeah. Be popular from it. A lot, a lot of poets want to be popular. They want to be the person at the reading who gets the autographs and the attention, and, you know. The relationship, all that stuff. Yeah, and it, it could be that, and and it's just again very individual dependent. And me, I think we're similar in the fact that we like to kind of travel around the world, if not yeah. in physical in form, home, then, you know, mentally. So, um, yeah, yeah, you know, after a while, I don't always want to write in the same form i don't always want to write in the same voice st- style i want to tackle a subject differently partly to also i, I enjoy problem solving um and so yes for me it is the also the yeah it's also about problem solving how can we because obviously we have a disease a societal disease yes. that runs much deeper that permeates throughout every kind of community that we do not talk about that again we going back to the idea that we're only addressing it in very rudimentary sledgehammer kind of way so how so i want to talk about it in different ways to speak to different audiences but also address my own one of how can i write this in a way that I am trying to solve it, at least in my mind, because again, this particular case is very, it doesn't fit neatly at all. So out of that complexity came a more nuanced take, I think. To finish up, I would love for you to tell us, A, if you have any recommendations in terms of virtual readings that that your favorite ones, maybe, and also how people can follow you online. Well, you already brought one up, Paris Lit Up Workshop. Mm-hmm. I go there a lot. There's also the AWOL Workshop, ran by Bruce Sherfield. Oh. One of one of my big inspirations. He's out here in Paris. I don't know if they're online yet, but whenever you come to Paris, you have to go to AWOL Writers Workshop. Okay. Uh, hosted by Bruce. 
then there's also sometimes you can just walk into Shakespeare and Company and find something. Sometimes there'll be stuff at Red Wheelbarrow going on where you can either go to a specific workshop, a specific reading, or you can just hang out and talk. Because I think there's a lot to be learned from a reading, mm-hmm. um, getting your chops up and confidence. And, but you need to see that page in order to really help your work. Hearing mm-hmm. work is only going to get you so far in subject matter, context, and unpredictability. But to really function as a craftsman, you got to get that page. So um, workshops I frequent are Paris. And online, I have this one Twitter called Poets Live. Mm-hmm. And all I do is post other people's readings and uh books that I know are interesting and are inspiring. Like all my posts on there are to inspire you. I don't post stuff about what Poets Live is doing. Poets Live doesn't do readings anymore. Um, But I used to host it. And so I I constantly just want to get everyone's work on there. So, Mm. and then on my own Twitter page, just Malik Amir Zero, I just share my friend's stuff all day. (laughs) That's where I find my stuff. Yeah, that's really it. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your poetry with me, too. Of course. This is some inspiring work. Thank you so much. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.